Hello and welcome back to The Junto, a podcast dedicated to mastering the greatest game I'll ever play in, and that is the game of life. My name is Cornelius McGrath, and I'll be your host as we have the conversations that truly matter about work, life, and everything in between. The Junto is a podcast produced by Everyday Entrepreneur. If you're not already a member of EE, you're missing out. We're a membership-based platform for ambitious businesses and professionals who want to level up in the game of life. We provide a slew of bespoke experiences, content, community, and training to our members all over the globe. We're home to a fellowship program, lifestyle accelerator, talent collective, travel platform, and a quarterly magazine. In short, we've built a world that's capable of changing yours, regardless of what you do or where you reside. If you'd like to join or simply want to learn more, visit everydayentrepreneur.co or click the link in the description below. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode two of the Junto Bestie podcast. I'm very excited tonight to introduce uh, the, the final bestie that we so desperately missed in episode one, uh, Mike Rubino. Uh, Mike is going to kick us off tonight talking about kind of the future of the office and the implications that that has for the professional workforce. So Mike, welcome. It's, it's great to have your energy here. I have no doubt the charisma of the show is just going to go through the roof. And yeah, man, why don't you tee us up with, with what you've been thinking about since episode one? Yeah, I really missed you guys in the first episode, but happy to be here. Um, you know, my uh, topic really wants to is focus on the importance of the office, or I think I would think it think of it as the importance of kind of building something together. Because I think when you already start with the pretext of uh, the importance of the office, people kind of shy away from that. And I think we have a bunch of people, but guests you know, besties on this uh, pod here that have all different perspectives on what it feels like to get into that routine, maybe of being in the office. Aman's building a company. I'm part of a company that I've been building for two years. Um, <clears throat> Jihad, you're in the ex, you're working now, but you were like, uh, you're remote, correct? You're remote. And then obviously Cornelius, you built a future, like a career um, right there at that desk. Um, but I think there's enormous value in going to the office. I think there's a great article that everybody should read when we talk about this topic and why it means a lot to me. It's called, if you will go to the Wall Street Journal, it's called The Price We Pay for Being Less Social. And it really kind of just talks about uh, the history of kind of how we've waned away from social interactions, uh, really kind of, at least in the last 20 years, starting with ordering things online, having less of a need to go into retail, retail storefronts, which kind of creates a distance between our neighbors and less of a need to socialize with one another. So like, when you think about that, think about that in an office context. And there's just great quote in the article that says, this contemporary, the contemporary shift towards interiority, interiority has very different consequences than in the past. Removing the routine obligations of social life, drains presence, conversational practice, relational effort, and friendship from all of us. And so just think about that when you're like, building a team together, working on a product together, working on a launch together. So I think not only for the value of building products within an organization, how, what are, I would love to know like some good examples and how that's actually done remotely that isn't some type of SaaS product. Okay. Cause uh, I think that becomes a much more distorted conversation. If we could only pull like SaaS examples, if we could pull other examples outside of SaaS, I think, I think that would be really relevant. And then, so that one, for me, already 
that's one of my reasons why I think it's so important to be together as a team collectively. Uh, but then the other thing is just like from the real estate perspective, which I think is the really interesting topic is what is what are the effects of people not going into the office in downtown urban cores, right? So when you think about Midtown specifically or San Francisco specifically, those two areas that have Midtown's doing better, right? They're right now at this, as of this conversation, averaging about 40%, 40 to 42% of like the off the entire office being occupied, not on a company basis, but the entire building in San Francisco is hovering in the 30s. And you could ask many small retail owners around that area uh, how much they're suffering. And that means a lot to me because those retail storefronts and those interactions between an office worker and a retail storefront, even if it's casual, even if it's just purely transactional and routine when they're at work, uh, it makes up the fabric of that area. So, you know, I think like this whole conversation about everybody's individual need to want to kind of be in more control of their schedule has the consequences at work in your pro with productivity and again, small businesses. And so I don't think we've had a productive conversation, you know, when you read in the news or you just hear conversations about it, the conversations like one or the other, or a, a shift to something permanent where like there is a period of time where we're staying home, but that shift has clearly dire consequences um, from a business perspective. And, uh, you know, I think that's something I want to open up with you guys is like, how do you guys feel about that reality that exists um, across the country where places are vacant. Um, you know, I was in a cafe a few weeks ago and I overheard this graduate from Michigan. She's like, I went to Michigan. I graduated. I've been in, I've been in like corporate role for a year. I haven't met my colleagues and all I do is work from my couch. I'm miserable. And like, I know that's an anecdote, like one example, but I'm sure people can relate to it. Um, so there's two things there. How how do individuals feel and how are businesses impacted? I think it's a really important conversation. And um, you guys are younger than me. So, you know, it'd be nice to hear you guys' views. As as someone who has never worked in an office um, since graduating college, I feel like I am not best suited to answer this question. I kind of want to pass it to Oman um, as someone who's sort of been on both sides of the coin, especially now with a much smaller team uh, versus versus being at a larger company in an office before. Jihad, you actually reminded me of something. Aman, before you got into your role, I asked you a question when we were together off camera. I said, are you going to require your future employees to be in the office? And I'm just wondering, have you given, obviously you're starting, you're going to have to start giving that thought. You probably already did. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think for, for, for us, we have the like, the initial attempt is to, to make sure that the founding team is in person and by in person we'll do kind of, you know, hybrid. Um, so we'll have a couple of people, you know, a couple of days. Well, so right now me and my co-founder, we're working six out of seven days in the office. Um, and that has been terrific. Cause there's also just like, there's like many celebrations and like, you know, also like weirdly awkward and tough conversations that if you have them in person, you can use that to build a relationship. And if you don't, if you're not doing it in person, it's very different. I, you know, I do think that for some people, um, you know, the working remote or working kind of remote first 
um, might actually be better, like maybe certain personality types, maybe certain types of work. Um, but I think certainly in my experience, like I, I'm, you know, definitely more of an introvert, but I much prefer to be in the office. I much prefer to have that interaction. There's just too much that you miss out, um, not being in person. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we, we are definitely looking for people that are in the New York area. Um, and, uh, that presents challenges, but, but I feel like, you know, especially if you're only looking for a few people versus you're looking to hire thousands of people, um, you know, it's, it's a very different story and it's definitely something that we can kind of pref and, uh, and index on, but Mateo, you were, you were kind of reacting a little bit. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I feel like there's an element of how collaborative is your role. Like if you can kind of do things independently and be siloed off, I feel like the room for being remote increases a lot, but I think there's just such a, I'm very curious as like more research comes out on just like the productivity behind it and like the trade-off for some people of commuting. But I just know firsthand, like I love working remotely, but also recognize I'm less efficient. Um, if the right people are around me, which again is more of a, a hiring thing and what roles people have within the company. But like, for example, I was in North Carolina last week with the Beast team, people from production all the way from like writers to props to um, like on set post-production. If those people weren't all in the same room, like 10 hours a day, there is no way it would function like zero. So I think there's varying degrees depending on the company and the roles for each person. But that's what it made me think of when you were talking about it. Like there's no way a founding team, I think in your situation would do better if you were remote given the context. Um, so that's where it made me go. Uh, you know, and Mateo, this is such an interesting point you make about, and, and Iman too, about maybe there's employees who might have a preference or more be more productive when they're kind of working in isolation or they have their own uninterrupted time. And uh, it just reminded me of this slide that we use uh, when we're pitching, but there's a slide. We cite this study because you were talking about research. It came from the Well Building Institute. They like all they do is study um, mental uh, employee health and well-being. And so they tracked that they tracked this throughout the pandemic. And so they found that like three quarters of employee respondents all struggle with individual well-being and it tallied up. It was like 93% of people spend their lifetimes in two places where they live and where they work. So if you're an employer or you're thinking about policies like this, of course, productivity is a bottom line priority for an organization, but then there's those soft elements, individual well-being, mental wellness, those components that I would argue you can improve by being together. But it's like, you know, you how do you have that conversation with a colleague um, on an interview about a sensitive subject about well, mental well-being? You know, that's that's also something that employers are gonna have to grapple with. You know, we think about our policy uh, as we are going to add employees um, about having a hard rule about being together. And I'm sure Iman, you're gonna run through this too. So. Yeah, I mean, those. Are, I just wanted to make that point on uh, individual productivity and why there's just more to it than the productivity aspect of it. Yeah. Well, because even go ahead. I was just going to say, even if you're a business owner and you're trying to turn this into some type of equation, like the reality is, for a lot of people, if a job's remote, it's probably more appealing to most of them. So you're just naturally going to then have to do a better job in other areas to like convince an employee to work for you. And there's some people who are like, oh my God, I have to be in person. But that seems to be more and more rare, especially with COVID. So 
going back to your point though, Rubino, with like mental health and people thinking about that, I think there's some subconscious incentives that kind of get moved around as well as an employer of just being cognizant of like what, if you're going to let someone be remote, what else are you kind of like giving up or vice versa? If you're forcing, forcing, that's an aggressive word. If you're asking people to come into the office. Yeah. I think another interesting part of this conversation is like, separating the tools from like the norms around the tools, right? So for example, like when you were in, in an office, somebody coming to your desk, seeing somebody at like in the hallway, whatever it might be, like those like casual run-ins, running to a, a coworker to just like have a brainstorming sesh, like those sorts of things happen. And it, it's normal for those things to happen, right? Because like even outside of an office setting, like when you're in school, like if you're in a classroom, that is normal for that sort of like interaction to occur. Um, our norms around like that theoretically could happen with a zoom that theoretically could happen like working from home. Like you could just pick up the phone and call somebody. Right. But the norms around working from home is that like you have a little bit more privacy and there's a little bit less of like, Oh, I could just like chime in and, and grab this person's attention whenever I feel like it. Right. Because they can put up a wall and also like, I don't want to like infringe upon whatever norms they have set for themselves. I think working with Mateo on a much smaller team, like, completely remotely for an extended period of time was interesting because like I never felt like we were missing out on I mean maybe like a little bit but like overall and in the vast majority of times I never felt like we were missing out on like those brainstorming sessions that sense of community that collaboration because me and Mateo had like the expectation that like he would just randomly call me at 9 p.m at night and I was totally cool with that and I would just answer right or like I would just text him be like yo like can you hop on the phone really quick and we would just do that right I have coworkers right now who I can't do that with. And I have coworkers right now that, who I can do that with. Right. And I think like the, the level of collaboration, the level of community that I feel is very, very different based off of the norms that those folks have, have developed. I know we're getting uh, close to the end of this topic, but I, I wanted to touch on a, a subject in here that we didn't yet, which is the spillover effects on, on small business. And the, I, I get it. I get the convenience of working remote uh, effectively and ordering something like Grubhub because you don't have to go out there and you save time. And, but that, you know, think of all the things that that eliminates when you get to order remotely or things that you don't stumble across anymore and what that does to the surrounding neighborhoods. So when we talk about minority business owners, business owners in general that own these storefronts that we are just actively choosing not to patronize because we're not there. Um, what are the, you know, how do you guys feel about that? Do people not, the, the wrong way to ask is like, do people not care about it as much, but like, do people think about that as much? I mean, feel, I feel like I, when I go to the office, I almost feel like an, an obligation to do that, that I should step out and grab lunch that at a nearby storefront. If my options aren't the best and they're just okay, well, the, the benefit to that business is greater than my need, which is just a meal. This is interesting because like, just like practically speaking, being at home definitely makes me feel obligated to like cook a lot more, right? So like that, therefore I'm going out for lunch less, right? Or it makes me feel obligated to like, okay, like I am, my my entertainment might be like, okay, I'm home anyway. Let me just like stay home and do something versus like going out and doing it. But at the same time, like I'm hitting spots for lunch almost every day because I'm too lazy to cook or because I still want <laughs> like the the other food, right? And like, living obviously like there's different levels of remote right there's like remote if i was living in ohio right now yeah where like it's a totally different story i can't just walk out of my apartment and go like to one of these storefronts versus like 
my apartment is right next to where my office might be at the moment. So like, regardless of whether I'm at my office or whether I'm here, I could still go and, and get my sweet green or whatever it might be. Right. Um, so yeah, I think like that's, that's also an interesting component. Like there's the city aspect of it here, where it's like how much, how many folks are, are still living in cities and still giving some semblance of that community and some semblance of that, like small business support um versus how many folks are are remote and like living completely out of where they would live prior and and that i think what you described becomes much larger of an issue yeah i mean i think what annoys me is that it's this is such a nuanced conversation and this conversation is just talked about one preference over another and it's usually dictated by what facebook's policy and google's policy and apple's policy is in terms of return to the office and all these smaller businesses less than a thousand employees um, are trying to follow in those footsteps and not thinking about these other effects that might have on the employees and businesses around them i mean that that from what i've observed working in real estate for the last two and a half years watching those people you know leaders follow those policy decisions um it kind of upsets me Mike, I'll just, I won't actually end with an opinion. <clears throat> I can see you all feeling shocked by that statement, but um, I've been reeling a Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam and just a couple of quotes that I think would be valuable for you to take away is, the young worker primarily thinks of himself. We are experiencing the cult of the individual and labor is taking a beating, preaching the comfort of coalition. These days, people get about 90% of their social connections from the workplace Work is where the half is then for many solitary souls. And actually, what you make, what you're putting out is actually, yeah, people are paid to work and uh, not build social capital. And so Robert argues that American social capital hasn't disappeared. It simply moved into the workplace. And so I think you make a great point. Whereas if people aren't participating in the workplace anymore, where are they getting that social connectivity? Um, but I find that problem statement exciting, not troubling. Same. Any final thoughts on that, boys? Do you have final thoughts on that, Cornelius? <laughs> I, I'm going to abstain because the I, real I question like, we all wanted to know. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I, I'm good with ending with that. Um, yeah. You know, I've, I, I'm a solopreneur. I, I'm not opposite of Mike. Like, I actually think we start from the same principles. Um, I'm with him. I think work is such a cool way to build great relationships. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, we're innovators, right? So people have to find new ways to, to support their communities. And I'm very excited by this new era that we live in that, Mike, you're right, there isn't a playbook. So let's build one. So what I would push you on, agreed, there isn't a one solution for all. But you definitely are more nuanced than the Wall Street Journal or anything that I've read on this. And I haven't really read anything from the perspective of like the social community. So I'd really encourage you to write something about that. I would totally love to read it because that's where business owners are going to go, right? It's like, okay, well, I need a solution. Um, and I like that you're not getting pushed into a corner, but I would love to know, like, you know, show me the data that, you know, remote work has a devastating impact on like local business. Um, because you could just make the argument opposite, right? Like people have more time, they have more discretionary income. They can literally go and live in other places that aren't big cities. So I think we're just so early on this that it's good to not come to any rapid conclusions. But I think Robert Putnam's piece is actually what you're talking about, which is you're actually not talking about work. You're talking about how social capital in America gets built. Mm -hmm. And that's why the book's called Bowling Alone. Because once upon a time, people stopped going to bowling alleys.
I, that's why I started it saying like, I don't want this to be a discussion about going yeah. into the office or not. It's about the meaning, meaningful relationships that can come from being there. Right. And point, the end right? of the country, you know, the end of the country club and the church. So work to me is just the final vehicle that's falling, you know, as kind of a, it, it's falling to this bigger trend, the cult of the individual and, Look, it's the reason why I believe so deeply in the Junto and even this podcast is, yes, it's so cool that we can all be individuals, but nobody nobody on this pod, right, would argue that one individual here is greater than the sum. Right, that's like, we can all agree on that. The question is, okay, great, but to collaborate, do we all agree that it has to happen in some monolithic way? And I think that's fascinating. Anyway, I've said too much. Jihad, please go ahead. No, 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 no. I actually have a, a, a proposal. Can we, uh, can we make a halftime rule real quick? Everybody has to come off mute for the entire call. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear Sounds the, right. I hear the, the mm-hmm's and ahas and, and mm-hmm. people off and mm-hmm. yes. On all that. yes. <laughs> yeah. I want to hear, I want to hear the yes queen while I'm, while I'm making my next point. You want to hear my flatulence? Cool. Jihad. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Jay. Well, why don't you tee us up and you can you can hear us all interrupt you now we're off mute. <laughs> um next topic. What was my topic? My topic was so there's a really interesting article in Every last week. Every is like this writer's collective that that just basically writes about everything tech-related. Um and this particular piece was around like the end of the VC business model, right? How like VC as a business model is just inherently flawed. A lot of the points that we hear all the time, right? Like taking VC just forces you to like, as a founder to focus on like the hundred X return. Like if you are not a billion dollar company, then you are a failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the math in the article was really interesting. And I just want to like pull it up real quick if I can find it. But um, basically talking about how like one of the funds who invested in Figma pretty late stage um, obviously Figma just got acquired for like an insane sum of money. And like, you would assume, I'm sorry, 20 billion. Yeah. Something around that. More than that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you would assume if you had a significant chunk of Figma because you were a series B or series C investor, um, you're going to return the freaking fund. Right. But because this particular fund, I want to say the number was like, had, close to $3 billion AUM. And, and one and a half of that was from the fund that they invested in Figma through. They only returned like a third of the fund using their share of Figma, right? So they still needed two more Figma size returns in order to just return the fund, right? So that means, <laughs> that means from a founder perspective, they're putting the pressure for everybody to be Figma. At the same time, you've got guys, I forget the name, but uh, the, the, um, the guy started this thing called Indie VC and his whole thesis was like exactly the stuff that we've talked about before, right? Like there is value in these smaller businesses that are not going to be unicorns, but are still making like millions of dollars a year in revenue, right? They're still sustainable businesses. They are still going to be employing maybe dozens of people. They're just not going to be the next Facebook, right? And from a VC perspective, at least for most folks, like that's not a business I want to invest in, but from a normal person perspective, that is an investable business, right? There's going to be sustainable growth. There's going to be revenue, which most a lot of VC-backed companies can't even claim. Um, and uh, that's ran that experiment in DVC ran for a while, 
And then the founder earlier this year basically came out and said, we're shutting down NDVC. Um, he highlighted like a bunch of the great returns that they got on, in, on businesses that they invested in, but basically made the argument that there weren't enough companies out there. He having like a great brand and like getting a lot of inbounds from folks who like supported this thesis, there weren't enough companies out there that weren't taking like traditional VC capital and didn't want to go that route um, for him to make NDVC like a sustainable business. It's not that the investing methodology was flawed because the companies that they did invest in ended up doing very, very well. It's that there weren't enough companies. There wasn't enough deal flow for NDVC to be like a sustainable project moving forward. And now he's going off and trying to start something along that thesis that's like new, probably something that is focused on like incubating more of these projects or bringing more of them to light. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation around like the future of funding. Um, I mean, from our AMA days and also just like from the, the crypto side of things right now, there's like, I'm doing a lot of work on, on micro funding of like creator projects and, and how we could like help incubate like creator run businesses, like broadly defined, um, either from like getting funded by communities or, or by grant programs or things like that. Um, and even though like a lot of these new alternative mechanisms for funding are taking place, the like in this marketplace of ideas, it is not a supply side problem as far as like funding is concerned. It is a demand side problem. Like there isn't enough demand for these funds because there aren't enough projects that are popping up that are going this route of saying, I'm not going to be a VC backed business. I'm just going to build a sustainable business, right? I, as a creator, want to create. I want to do so economically sustainably, but I want to do so in a way where I don't need to be Mr. Beast, essentially, right? Um, no shade, no shade. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this because I think, like, even, again, going back, like Mateo and I had conversations about this, like in the, the middle days of AMA, where we were like, would we want to theoretically raise money for AMA in the future? Like, what would raising VC money actually look like. Um, and I know like we had some like pretty philosophical conversations about like, what are the outcomes that we wanted for the business and, and whether VC made, money made sense. At Forefront, the company I'm at right now, like we took VC money in the early days and that's like, in a lot of ways helped because it gave us a lot of runway, but at the same time, like bit us in the ass because now there are like expectations from the investors that we have and expectations if we ever want to raise future capital, um, regardless of who the investor is and what their philosophy is, on on what is like what we should be doing moving forward so yeah would love to hear your thoughts i certainly don't think that the vc model is dead yeah i think i mean it was obviously hyperbolic but yeah i mean you have the most successful youtuber in history that just is raising from vcs <laughs> presumably i don't know mateo maybe can can, can make, give us more make, detail no would, comment yeah is it coming <laughs> from you are you are you providing the the one fifty? Yeah, man, I uh, I wasn't planning to tell in, people in yet. Jelly but... stock stock is that is that what it is? The liquidity from AMA. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's a bad thing, though, Amon. Like, why is Mister Beast raising all of that money? Why is he raising at a one point five billion dollar valuation? What what why is that a problem? I mean, he's one of the most profitable creator businesses on the planet right now. Yeah, and. So why is he raising like like why is why does any why does any money why does any uh, company that is making a lot of money go on to raise VC money? 
because they want to grow faster because they want to achieve different things that uh that they couldn't do with if they continue to to just operate off their own cash flow now it's either that i mean there's there's also a lot of different avenues for for funding and so if you take vc money that's like that's on you right like you're making that conscious decision not to go after a different type of funding model um to me i'm not really sure like i i get what the problem is I mean, I guess like there's just like a, a, like, I don't believe that's this idea that like, oh yeah, like obviously you would raise VC money because you want to grow bigger. Like, why is that the assumption? Why can't we just say like, Mr. Beast could continue to grow bigger, maybe not at the speed that VC money would allow and it wouldn't get all of the press that VC money would bring. But at the same time, like that could still be a very big, very profitable business, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that per se. It just comes back to like what the founders want originally. Right. Jay. So like we never raised money because we didn't want to come into the expectation of make this a unicorn in four years. Cause we were like, that's, that's not what we're setting into it for, for someone like Jimmy and beast, like they want to be the next Disney. That's their goal. And so they have all of these different projects that per Amon's, what he was saying, right? They're like, we know we could do this naturally, but we know we could do it way faster if we also had other capital helping us. So press aside, like all of that shit to the side, at the end of the day, it's just the ability to do things faster. And I think the problem from my vantage point is that most founders are just trained through the A16Z blog, whatever educational pipelines of like, you have to raise, that is the path. There aren't other avenues if you're trying to be a successful founder. Look at all of these great case studies they went through here too. And that to me is what needs to change of like people realizing that like, oh, it's actually okay to be like a successful small business that people haven't heard of that makes a couple million dollars a year and has a team of eight. Like I always said to Cornelius and I think to you as well, over the last few years that like, I always wanted to find a role model who did a business like that. And I never found them. And it's partially probably on me for not looking hard enough, but I also think it's just part of the like sad reality of how a lot of people think about operating startups. So to me, that's where the problem is. I'm curious what you think about that, but I don't think like a mom was saying, there's anything wrong in saying, Hey, this helps us do it faster because I think they still acknowledge they would do fine without it. I think it's just preference of like, what are you, what is the end outcome goal that we're searching for? And how do you, how do you work backwards from there? I also think that like the world of the small business is just not really covered by media. And like, as a result, like there are so many people, like if you just look at the number of, you know, small businesses out there, small medium businesses, regardless of what the trend is, it's a huge number. And the number that fit that bill that you're talking about in terms of like, very successful, a small team, you can find that in every single industry. And it's kind of interesting for me because like, as I get deep into one particular, you know, niche, I'm finding all these different, you know, small businesses that are run by very small teams of people, not really growing tremendously every single year, but they don't really need to. They're like very easily sustaining their own salaries and stuff. Um, But, you know, that's not going to get reported on. That's not really like newsworthy and, and uh, it's not what the media like focuses on. And that's why I, I even think to the previous conversation around, um, you know, the impact on the small business uh, of remote work. Like I, you don't really, maybe I'm just not watching the the right channels or, or, or kind of, uh, you know, outlets, but um, I feel like I don't really hear about that all that much. And so as a result, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, but I, I do agree like, yeah, like, and I think especially a lot of the avenues that we've gone through, um, you hear a lot more about VC and you hear a lot more about that, that, you know, 
uh, fast path to kind of either big success or crash and burn. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other kind of, um, ways to make it and ways to be successful in whatever way you, you decide. And so, I mean, yeah, like the micro acquire kind of thing, I think is, is interesting. Um, uh, but I'm also like, not really sure. Like, how do you, how do you do that at scale? I don't know. I'm sure some people have found ways to do it, but, but um, yeah, off of what you had originally said, do you need to do it at scale? Depending on, I think the person and the goal. I'm, I'm, the I'm talking more if yes. you're trying to make that systematically successful, right? Okay. The micro acquisition, not, not for yeah. like an individual entrepreneur or an individual team. Uh, but Rubino, you're going to say something too. Uh, number one, I was just going to say 2021 record year for small business formation. That doesn't get talked about enough. So you're totally right. Number two, I think, Jad, really what you're talking about is like not having, there aren't enough avenues for patient capital out there as we were um, thinking, as we're currently thinking about fundraising, you know, the part, half of the reason why we've been holding it up, putting it off so much is this pressure that we might assume we'll face the second we raise from a larger fund. But there are funds that are more segment specific or outcome specific that are a little more patient and will be better partners to grow at a rate that we can sustain that doesn't impact our business. And those those exist, but they don't, you know, there's not thousands of indie VCs versus just a traditional VC that you're kind of talking about in this article. And so, you know, I th we're on that search now and there aren't really other options outside of that. Banks still underwrite the same way they underwrite all the time. Let's look at your tax. Let's look at your past two years tax returns. Are you rev are, are you profitable? How much can we lend against this? And, you know, I, we just went through this conversation actually at uh, one of the largest banks this week. And so we know that there aren't many options available. But I think what you're talking about is maybe just patient capital or DVCs that are okay with founders growing at a particular rate versus an expected rate. <laughs> yeah. I think it's both the particular rate and the particular cap, right? Like I, I think there, are, there's a lot of patient capital in the, in the world of VCs. They just like, they're patiently waiting for you to be a $10 billion company. Like <laughs> there isn't like a, okay, we're cool. If this, if this million dollar business becomes a $50 million business, right? Because their economics just aren't structured that way. Um, I think the other thing, a lot of this is coming from like frustration of like talking to friends who are founders recently. Like I've, I have a friend who is like currently pitching what you said, Mateo, like really stuck out. Like Mr. Beast wants to be like the, the Disney, the next Disney, right? I have no doubt that that's his actual vision because I've seen that man's ambition like over the last however many years, right? Yeah. At the same time though, like I think a lot of founders like talk that big stuff, um, despite the fact that they don't actually believe that vision or they force themselves to believe that vision because that is the direction that they're being pushed by the money that is most accessible to them, right? Yep. Um, like I, I was talking to a founder the other day who is literally building like a Jira competitor, right? Like a very like niche, like, like project management tool, right? And they were like talking all of this big stuff about how like this is going to change the world of work like, dude, you're a Jira competitor for like, like artists, like you're not, you're not going to change the world of work, I promise you. But like, he, they, that's the obligation that you feel when you are trying to like pitch this type of money, right? So I think to that point, like, 
I think most people don't actually want to be the next Disney. They just say that because that is that is the opportunity that is most immediately in front of them. I agree with that. Jay, to, to kind of raise a more <clears throat> philosophical tilt, and then I think we should naturally move into alternative financing models. I think the biggest question is like, what should an investor really represent? Um, and I've just got done um, reading um, Daniel Gross and Tyler Cowen's book. And they have like a really interesting idea about like how you raise the aspiration of others. And if you can raise the aspiration of others, right, they start to feel like they're part of this exclusive club and then they start performing. And so I think what's really interesting about capital, and if you hear all of these accelerators from Y Combinator um, down to, you know, some of these more micro-focused uh, accelerators, so Tiny Seed is actually one that I recently applied to. Um, effectively, like the, the kind of takeaway from the Cohen book was like cash alone very rarely makes a difference, especially in low-income environments. Actually, it's cash plus coaching that provides huge returns to scale. And so what's funny is like, you can't get into any of these accelerators unless you take money because then what's the incentive for the people that build the space? But then the people who take the money say it's not about the money. It's about the network and the coaching, which I believe. I don't think everybody's lying, but it's got to feel kind of nice, right? If Andreessen or the guys at Y Combinator are backing you, you start to believe in yourself and maybe other people start believing in yourself. So I think that's a really interesting idea, um, which kind of gets back to this ideas of types of capital that Robin Putnam talks about. Like when we are talking about investors, we are purely talking about financial capital that allows you to acquire material capital, physical capital, social capital. But like, is that actually what a founder needs? Um, and then I agree with you, right? Like at the end of the day, like people are going to become what the medium forces them to become. So yes, if somebody wants to become Disney, that's great. But my bullshitometer on that is Disney never said they wanted to be Disney, right? So even Disney never knew they could be Disney, like at the root cause. They just wanted to build and, and create something. And I think the focus has got away from that. And I'll just talk very candidly. Like I have, I'm yet to meet a venture back to a venture back founder who I've been impressed by. Just period. Like I'm yet to meet one. That That's is so on brand. That's so on brand. Yeah, that is just like just I've ever heard. Just just yet to meet one. Truly. Just <laughs> I'm really I'm really gonna think about that, but just like yet to meet one. Um and like the people that I've been probably most impressed by, like haven't existed in that world. Like truly. Um, now, there are some phenomenal venture-backed investors that I think are incredibly eloquent and clearly know a ton. And of course, I haven't met any of the big boys because they're not like available to me. But I just feel like continually unimpressed. Um, and I feel like it's a self-perpetuating cycle, right? Like come and get signed to this label. We'll give you all these resources. 90% of you ain't going to make it out of here, but it doesn't matter. 10% of you will, 1% of you will. And that's all we're here about. And like, you know, there's, there's not enough talking about that. And so that's where I think the cycle comes down. Obviously my business is called Everyday Entrepreneur. And at the end of the day, like business to me isn't about valuation. You know, it's about learning, it's about lifestyle. 
And so I think you raise a great point, which is not only are there not enough all-based financing models, but a lot of people are taking money when they actually need something else. And you've got to be super fucking brave to realize that and talk about that. And obviously I'm in that category, but I know there are others who off the record agree with me, but would never say something like that in public. Right. Cornelius, I feel like... Go ahead, I was going to say, I feel like the sad reality is that everyday entrepreneur is probably someone that raises money. <laughs> I Look, I, I'm not against raising money. Like, I think that's what, uh, a jihad, I'm glad you clarified. Like, let me just be very fucking real here. I've got no ego around it, raising money. Absolutely none. Uh, it's the last thing I want to do because I've got this idea that like a business is one that generates profit and can reinvest. I'm not beyond taking on more capital at a moment where I sniff an opportunity. Absolutely. But it's, it's kind of back to this idea of J. Cole and Crooked Smile. Like, yes, he could have got his teeth fixed. Yes, I can raise money. But the whole point is about legacy and showing kids that you don't need to get your teeth fixed to be J. Cole. And so these people that talk about playing legacy games, I don't think they're playing legacy games. You know, but I, I get it. If I if I could raise a billion and a half, would I? Probably. Because I'd be changed by that dynamic. And so I don't throw any shade, but I just come back to the to the the entrepreneur listening to this that's thinking about this. Like, how could they practically navigate? I go back to what I said in the first episode. It's a feelings business. Follow your feelings. You know, get into a conversation with these investors, with the other people that have taken the money and see how it goes. And the most hilarious thing about Figma and all these case studies get, that get thrown at us um, is like at the beginning, these guys were totally ignored by the very same investors who herald their success. You know, so it's not like these VCs have this like secret source. But yeah, I, I, just, I just think I'd love to agree with you, Iman. I'd love to see more small businesses talked about. I think it's a way more practical aim and reality for everybody. I think it's something some people should be proud of. Um, and then second, like there are some really cool ways now that you can kind of raise money. Uh, micro equity being kind of one space, micro VC. Revenue-based financing is a space that I've become more familiar with thanks to Stripe and things like Pipe. Um, and yeah, because I think the the equivalent that you shared, Rubino, of taking a loan from a bank, I mean, that's, that's really unideal because that's just financial capital. You know, it's not anything else. So you're just taking on a high interest rate loan with none of the other eight types of capital. Um, so yeah, I, I think those are just some of my like initial responses, eager to hear what, what people think. Just touching on the last point super quickly, Cornelius, I think that's really interesting. The idea of strictly financial capital versus coaching other resources, et cetera, because there's a lot of companies in the creator space that whether it's more venture-based uh, or other forms of financing are like coming in supporting creators. And the thesis is just like, here's a big check, go do whatever. And when I talk to creators, they go, oh, we don't actually want that because we want the check, but we want someone that can help us navigate how the hell we actually like grow these sustainable businesses because I'm 24 and I've never done this before. And so I think there's a big disconnect even between the financial institutions and the creator space and the creators themselves, which I'm sure more broadly has a lot of implications and uh, parallels as well. Yeah. I do think on a hierarchy though, the 
the the bootstrapper should be put above the the, the person as the raise investment. Just just period. Like you've been able to build something that's sustainable. That doesn't not mean that the VC back founder is not going to get there. But at that moment in time, that's where you're at. And so I would just say to you that like there's almost more skepticism of me that I haven't done those things without actually looking at what the conversation is about, which is can the product I build add value to the thing that you care about? So it's just completely shifted the conversation, um, which I think is a real shame. I understand why. There's a lot of very important people that are making a lot of money from this. Um, but I still think for v- VC is for the 1%. You know, the 99% of small businesses that Rubino is are talking about, that isn't practical for. Um, and that's a market opportunity that I'm actively trying to figure out. And as I look through history, the most successful innovators never had venture capital. Why would that be any different today? When you say the most successful innovators never had venture capital. Yeah, like people like Benjamin Franklin, right? People that built timeless evergreen institutions that have lasted eras. They did not go in with their pitch deck to some posh Sam Valley office and say, this is how I'm going to 10x the investment. They followed so, their- So the most valuable company in the world is, is it doesn't fit that bill. What do you mean? Apple getting venture capital money. But I think if you look at how it starts, it's the same thing, right? It's Steve Jobs bumming around Reed College, taking a typography course, you know. Yeah, but then going on to get venture capital. Yeah, yeah. But at the root, I think yes. you're like, yeah, at the root. So like we're talking about the root here, right? Like I said, I don't mind if people raise later. There's a ton of successful businesses like Salesforce, right? They're like bootstrapped for a while and then grow. But I think the point we're making, Amon, is that like VC is probably in very few cases the right first step. 100%. There's a lot of things you got to do first. The, the, those tangibles are curiosity, right? Conversation, energy. Yeah. What's your local community missing? Then you can pour, you know, gasoline on, on the fire. But there is an element that like, Growth at what cost? So like a fun story about the Junto, um, the library company, as you guys know, was the first ever subscription library in America. The library company went broke because they couldn't afford the real estate that was required to host all the books that they created or they hosted. So it, it doesn't deny the initial innovation, but the eventual innovation can get really burnt out. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's just the... The tough thing is, what are people getting into business for? Pure innovation or the plaudits and the sexy side of being an entrepreneur who's raised a few million bucks, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think over the last few years, it seems like it's been so easy to start a company and to to raise that funding. And so as a result, the bar has just gone down. And so you don't need to have been struggling and bootstrapping a business like example for me it's not that i've been building this business for years and years before taking on money um it's it was relatively easier to take take on money which is good in terms of bringing on some people to to start businesses and and start those small businesses that they may not otherwise have um but i think over time yeah i think like over the next few years it's not going to be so easy to start these businesses and so as a result you know the the bar to raise money and then therefore the the people that will go on to raise money will be, it will look very different. The landscape will be very different. 
Yeah. And and for me, it's less about like bootstrap versus VC. It's like, do you guys think the quality of the businesses being built is getting better? I think it's dropped off a cliff. I mean, you know, where's the next Apple coming from? Where's the next, you know, uh, library company? And, and Peter Thiel, you know, biggest VC of all time. Agrees with I was this. kind of going through this period of correction where maybe future founders can self-correct on what they want to build or, or what they're thinking about building. Or hope, hopefully there, there's some moral lessons here on what you want to build and how you want to build it. What are their incentives? In this world of instant gratification, why on earth would it make sense to do what I'm talking about? The only, the only thing I can get back to is integrity, to character, because you believe it's the right thing. All things that don't pay the bills, right? But things that I think define a human being. So I, I think it's existential. Um, and, and Jihad, I do agree with you. Like getting back to solutions, revenue-based financing, tapering micro-equity, which for everybody listening is, is really just defined as like I'll use the the example of Tiny Seed. Tiny Seed runs an accelerator twice a year. They give one hundred twenty thousand dollars per per founder. They're looking specifically for B two B SaaS businesses. So I didn't get accepted because I wasn't B two B SaaS. So that's another thing we can talk about. Um, so they're looking for yeah one hundred twenty k a founder. So then you know depending on what the business is kind of like valued at, right? Whatever their percentage is, they will take once you distribute. Um, enough money from the company over like 250K. So founders can pay themselves $250,000 a year. Anything you take out of the business beyond that gets distributed at the percentage ownership stake. So let's say Tiny Seed own 10%, you take out 300K, they'll take 10% of that 50. That's over and above the 250. That's micro equity, effectively, as I understand it. And so there's a bunch of companies in this space, Peach Core, uh, Calm, Funding, and it's really cool, actually, for a founder to apply to these things because it forces you on the fucking metrics of the business, not like the hype cycle. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting way to go. Revenue-based financing is also another great thing. My critique of revenue-based financing is you basically need to be at 25K MRR. So unless you're a SaaS business and unless you have 25K MRR, which is a pretty significant business, I think, you don't have those things available. So that's still that zero to 25K MRR, which... I would describe as a fucking mountain having gone through it and I'm going through it. There's still really nothing there for anybody um, other than like getting a few big clients and hoping to bootstrap. So that's a massive space. How lucrative that space is, Jihad, I'm not sure. But then I'm spending all these time at these billion dollar universities where people are just chucking grants around and hundreds of thousands of bucks of things that are going to go absolutely nowhere. Yeah. So there's an element of is, is entrepreneurship a public good? You know, should this should this be owned by private corporations? Um, can everything be va- you know valued in the in the measure of a you know evaluation? Like you know, I'm about to go apply for this fellowship at Harvard. You know, they pay you 70k for a year just to think, you know, and read, and it's like so awesome. But surely there's a middle ground between between like you know selling your soul versus venture, you know. <laughs> ruining your soul and your stress levels because you're bootstrapped and then buggering off to an academic institution where you have, you know, total lifetime employment security and you get to sit around and answer in 
think is about it, the big questions. Like, is it Bergman Klein? Uh, it, I want to do the Neiman Fellowship. Yeah. So, Bergman Klein is one of the the named fellowships of that program. But you know what I mean? Like, we've got fellowship VC, we, and then we've got this kind of like side hustle thing that we talked about last time, and then bootstrapping. I think you could put that on like a diagram. And I, I think what we're saying here is like, wouldn't it be awesome if a little bit more, if everybody could take a little bit more from each other? Like, I, I have to say, I would love some VCs to get behind some academics and be like, hey, you haven't published anything in four years. You're a bloody genius. Like, we're losing out. So, I, you know me, I'm, I'm driven. I love that. On the other hand, I don't think it should be, oh, you didn't grow, you know, 200% this year, year over year. Like, you're a failure. You won't be able to raise the next round. Like, there's surely there's a middle ground, you know, and I and I haven't seen anybody put those things together yet. And uh, sorry again for talking so long, but I love this topic. Too good. There's this really interesting essay that dropped this week um, by the founder of Ethereum, actually, but like it wasn't about crypto, um, and it was called the the revenue evil curve. And he basically is making an argument for like prioritizing public goods funding. Like what, like when you're talking about like public goods broadly, like how do we decide if we have X amount of money where the fund should go, right? And like, there's a lot of models that are actually being experimented on like in the crypto ecosystem. One of which is called like quadratic funding, which is like, okay, if I make a donation toward like a particular cause, um, actually like rewind a bit there's like two pots of capital there's like me individually like investing or donating to something and then there's like this like larger funding pool that comes from like institutional funders that's just like sitting above all of these projects and if i invest in like a mon startup but i invest a hundred dollars and like three people invest twenty dollars in mateo's like um like whatever public good that he's starting um more of the like large pool of capital up here will go toward Mateo than toward Amon, right? So it's supposed to be like a more democratic method of funding um, where like it's it's dictated by like the the amount of people, more by the volume of people that want something versus like the amount that you're willing to put towards it, right? But it takes both into account. With that context, there's like this other experiment of like, okay, outside of this like demo very democratic model of quadratic funding, what else exists? And he makes the argument that like we need to be balancing like revenue and evil when we're thinking about uh, when we're thinking about funding. So basically, like he doesn't he actually thinks advertising is a good model because like if I start like a magazine, right, and then I throw ads on my magazine, assuming that ads aren't like anything absolutely absurd, there's no evil in those ads, right? Like I'm monetizing something, but it's still like widely available to everybody else, right? So even though people like hate on advertising in his eyes, it's like, okay, we shouldn't fund media with public goods money because media has like a very like straightforward business model that like isn't evil. Whereas like selling data and getting into this whole conversation around privacy is a very evil business model. And maybe the businesses that we think are valuable, but are currently run on like, data sales and like infringement of privacy should actually be public goods because the the way that they're getting funding currently is a net negative on society right R regardless of whether or not we like agree with this framework i think it's like a very interesting way to start thinking about like priorities of like what should like we just throw vc money at because like regardless of how big it grows it's not going to like have significant negative effects on society and what should we think about like having alternate funding models for because those are the things that we need to be very thoughtful about how they're funded 
because a certain business model that they can tend toward is actually very bad for society as a whole. Yeah, people don't want to pay a dollar for Twitter. Outrageous. <laughs> I had to come eventually, right, guys? Someone had to I say agree. something. I agree. You can sift out the evil right there, which is part of the motive behind it, but that's okay. I know we're coming up on time. That was a great rant there, Jihad. I think I think it's great, buddy. And um I, I do I would love to know, like, you know, what what is that line between a public private good? You know, what are some cool, you know, incentives that could kind of be in place? Um that that's what I'd love to see because philanthropy in general um i don't think there's many philanthropists that are kind of happy with that model and, and how it plays out i think like university donations are like a step down from that and obviously that comes with its own you know difficulties um and then yeah there's like oh the returns someone else can can get elsewhere so so i get it you know if xvc fund is returning this much on lp's money it's really hard to say no but i put this question out a few times and no one's really answered so i'm gonna i'm gonna take that as i'm right of course <laughs> that i i let's get back to basics are we impressed with what is being built we live in the most technologically advanced capital abundant remote era like are we are we excited do, do we do we really think that you know, this era that we're in is is generating cool shit. And like, of course, I, I could name 10 things right now I think is super cool, but my 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 message and feeling on the whole is like, no. And I want to kind of unpack that a little bit. Because you're not excited about the metaverse? No. <laughs> not sure anybody is now uh, <laughs> after last week. But you know what I mean? I just want to get back to basics a little bit of like, not that, you know, the four of us, are the pulse on the world. But the most interesting thing about this podcast to me is that we've got, you know, a South side of Chicago Italian. We've got a Muslim from Youngstown, Youngstown, Ohio. We've got this kid here with a posh name from North London who's Irish. We've got this Cuban prince over here. Like, you know, like, yes, we have gone to very similar schools and grown up mostly in the Midwest, right? Me being from Europe. But I think we're super diverse. And so I do think the pulse is interesting. And I just want to get the pulses. You know, are we excited? Like, I feel like Jihad's probably most excited, I would say, from my vantage point, because he's on this cutting edge of this new space. But, like, I don't feel, I don't get texts from you guys being like, wow, look at this. Look at what this person's building. I just don't. You know, there's some very talented curators out there who are deeply entertaining and, and make great content. But I'm talking about building. I'm not talking about personality. Yeah, I mean... We were at a we were at a conference two weeks ago, real estate conference, and we looked around and all these booth attendees were there, and there's dozens of companies, and we were one of three hardware products in the most physical sector of the economy. <laughs> we were one of three hardware products there, and we're like, where are all the builders? <laughs> so uh, that's good I, for you, Mike. <laughs> I, it feels rewarding to be build building some building some hardware. And introducing something new, um, but yeah, like I, when you walked around, I mean, like, did you, did you, did you have like, you know, were you quaking in your boots? You know, no, you're like fuck. Yeah, that part was disappointing. I mean, that was you know, you just go throughout the conference, and every other booth is telling this developer to look at this data that they collect and how they 
you know, spit it out the other end and put it in the form of reporting and how it's valuable, but you know, nothing tangible to interact with, nothing that's really going to meaningfully change the day-to-day lives of the employees interacting in that office every day. So, you know, that was weird to see. Given how much you can read about offices undergoing transformation, it's just weird to not see any of the, the physical products being built. Yeah, I think I think you're pointing out a great point, which has been the unsaid thing of the media that we read versus actually going outside and experiencing life. I mean, it's a, it's a total 180, um, and- I, I find. And Jihad, you know, we talked about this briefly last time, but this that strike piece I shared about like intensity of work, like Mike, that's one thing I would agree with you on is remote work has definitely led to a lack of intensity. We can debate whether that's good, but it's kind of connected to this idea, which is like the only intense thing I hear about is people coming for their money. I don't experience any other intensity in any other domain. Maybe at a football match, but even that slowly declining is people can't drink in stadiums. You can't stand up anymore. You can't swear. I just dropped a, an essay. I would love to hear y'all's thoughts on um, the title is Definite Optimism as Human Capital. It's a bit meandering, um, but I think the, the argument- Jay, you've just got like, dude, you just pull this shit out of the internet. I just love it. Danawang.com. Like <laughs> like, I was looking at the link like, where the hell did he find this? And here's another blog you've never heard of. <laughs> like, you think of it. I love it. I mean, it's a great piece. It's a great piece. But he- he makes two arguments. A, um, the point that Cornelius is making, it, it's actually really interesting that like the point that Cornelius is making and the point that Rubino made combined is this essay. Uh, <laughs> so that's why we're friends. That's why we're friends. The the point Cornelius is making around like people just aren't freaking excited about like the broader state of what is being built in the world, and and this is like the definite optimism part, right? Like there's actual like value in like societal optimism around what we are building because that that tends people towards entrepreneurship that tends people towards like actually building things when they are they ex- they're excited and they feel like they can make a difference on the future in like a, a very impactful way. And the second part of this argument is this idea that like countries that have the most definite optimism are countries with the most like very hands-on builders like not the software engineers of the world but if you actually look at the American workforce like we can't build our infrastructure not only because we can't, we're not prioritizing like actual like physical infrastructure in the U.S., but there's literally not that many people in the U.S. that like actually work with infrastructure because our workforce is moving towards like software and services, right? Um, that combination of trends is like very very bad for not like maybe not economic development numbers, but it's very very bad for this conversation that we're having around like actually building things that are are meaningful and long-lasting and get people excited um yeah because when you see how capable people are look at uh the hurricane in florida right bridge collapse built new one built in three weeks right there there is a bridge in lincoln park that's been under construction for two and a half years and it's 300 (laughs) has it been interrupting your dog walks is that why you're pissed it's just it's just outrageous it is insane it is insane how incapable we are throughout throughout long stretches of time, but we could exert effort for a concentrated period of time. Imagine if we built new things with that same energy. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, and I think that's a really nice 
kind of wrap up point jihad is like yeah like what are, what do people think they can do like we got really deep on that and i think one theme has been well people think they can do what they're exposed to or what they're told they can do they can do you know and that that really agrees with tyler cummins book which i think would actually be a good read for everybody you know about talent and and just this idea of coaching and raising the aspirations of, of individuals and and i think the aspiration it feels in the zeitgeist is raise around, sell it, make a bunch of people with already the most money, money. But there are these other examples that, that kind of go, you know, beneath the headlines. And these are actually the most impressive examples of building, you know, like, you know, by, by definition, um, you know, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a really deep, deep, deep topic. And, it's actually quite an isolating one because you, you start to make judgments on how people spend their time, which I'm certainly not afraid of, but we don't live in that culture now. No way. Well, we do, right? We, we, we harp on everybody's words and we cancel them, but we totally ignore what they spend 40 hours a week doing or not doing. <laughs> and I, I think there's, there's deep societal implications to that eventually. I think one thing about just tying this way back to remote work and what you were saying, Rubina, probably doesn't matter if you're in the office too, but I feel like there's so many people today who have, who base someone's like expertise and competence based on like the vibe they give without actually knowing what the hell they spend their time doing, like in any shape or fashion. Like, I feel like I've met 10 people in the last month where it's just like, oh, I think you're amazing. I've never actually seen you like ship something or code something or whatever and vice versa i think that's hilarious and it just made me think about <laughs> what you're saying Gordon. they're, yeah. they're seeing your idea guys yeah, yeah. and I, yeah and, and don't get me started on that. <laughs> yeah don't get me started about that because it's like um you know the whole building a public thing right like that's like the newest and grooviest thing and i do think there's a real they do the in public part and not the building part yeah and and then by the way like if you see a, a couple of minute examples of this like i will say there are people who come out and they're like yeah didn't hit our revenue goals whatever but like there's not there's not a lot of like this this building thing i'm reading i'm thinking god you must be living in a dreamland because mm-hmm. all this stuff i'm re- reading is not like any of the reality and and let's be real like there is a bit of a game here, right? Like we don't want to really give away how it really goes down in case somebody judges us or mm-hmm. that prevents us from the future. Dude, I uh, love seeing those Twitter profile pictures where they like outline themselves based oh. on their like MRR goal, like four of 10 KMR. So they have like 40% of their oh, profile wow. picture highlighted in red. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna... Yeah. <laughs> well, because well, that's the thing, right? It's like, oh yeah, I hit 100 km. Like the kind of gold standard is... 100k MRR, like, then I think the gods of the SARS world come down and they knight you one by one, like this. <laughs> but but then it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, but then it's like, cool. So like, how's the world better? Like, what have you done? Like, yeah, you've got 100, like, I know it, like, cool. Like, I'd love that. But like, what have you, what have you actually done? Like, tell me about the world now that your product is here. And so that's where I find like business for me is like, business is actually deeply unsatisfying and super boring because business at its core is actually just the same thing over and over and over again. 
and this world that we're talking about, which I'm convinced now it's not me because we always end up there, even if I don't start, we're kind of talking about taking pieces of that world and creating kind of like a new way of work and life. And I really think we're, we're on the cutting edge of that, like as a, as a group of people, although most of us haven't grown up in an office environment, like I think it's great that we can rely on Rubino to kind of talk about what that was like for him. But like our resident, our resident senior citizen. Resident yeah. old person. Yeah. It, but anyway, I don't want to get the point lost of just like, okay, great. Now you've hit 100K MRR. But what about all these other like deep kind of existential questions? What's the value of that? You know, and, and that's kind of the, the tough part of this is, you know, the biggest bank account does have a lot of leverage because you can hire the most people. And, you know, I, I couldn't imagine what you could do with like a 30, 40, let alone 45,000 person team. So that's why I'm really interested in like these solo people and what they're able to build with, not yeah. alone, but with a small group. Because I just, I just feel like that's setting a new standard. And I think Twitter, like I'm going to get the numbers wrong. But like, I think if you look at WhatsApp versus Twitter and you look at the employee count based on the revenue, it's like completely out of whack. And so, you know, when Elon goes in and it's like, yeah, we're going to cut all these jobs. Someone politely pointed out that like WhatsApp, is, you know, I think WhatsApp managed to sell with like 14, maybe 40 people. Like don't quote me on that. people, 19 billion. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so like, that's cool, right? Like that's kind of fun. Like that's like, oh, amazing. Like why don't we go deeper onto that? You know? But like, <laughs> I don't know. The other part of this, we could, we, yeah, Rubino, if you got to go, we should probably just wrap up. But I'll just yeah. say, like, at the end of the day, those guys that are getting 100K MMR, MRR on Twitter, like, mad respect, man. I wish dude, I yeah, Dude, 100%, 100%. Like, I got I don't so like, much. I don't like your profile picture, but mad respect for <laughs> doing it. Yeah, I got mad respect too, but I'm just, I'm curious what the product is, you know, and, I'm, I guess my point is like I'm curious what what people are being consumed to consume, breed it to consume. Playing, they're, they're playing the game. They're playing the game. Like at the end of the day, the product is just selling other people that the product is valuable, right? Like the pro, like most of these guys on Twitter are coaches, right? Most of these guys are literally just selling a version of of like themselves that people want to become, um, and just doing it in the way that like algorithmically is getting in their face. A million times is it net beneficial to society no is it making the money yes are people willing to pay it yes because going back to the very very beginning of this conversation this whole idea of like the the cult of the individual that is that is the world that we currently live in and like the way to monetize is not actually building great institutions the way to monetize is to just make individual people feel like they are kings right yeah so like Damn. what becomes what becomes wow. of that what becomes of that at a macro level, though? That's fucked. A oh. bunch of people just making 100k MRR with like a cool Twitter profile. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I'm listen, yeah. at a society, at a societal level, I am not saying it is a good thing. There's a reason I personally am not playing that game. Right? You could make the argument that it's because I couldn't. Maybe, but like, I would like to think that it's because I want to build like at a societal level rather than at the individual, like, let me just maximize income by playing the game as perfectly as possible. Right. It's kind of like in GTA when like 
there's like a way to like win GTA. There's a way to like go through your missions and stuff, but like mm. you just want to like F around and see how accurately you could drive the car and like actually stop at all the lights rather than like hitting the cars and like robbing people. Like that's, that's the game we're playing right now. Like there's the missions are lined up and the missions that are lined up are not net beneficial for society. So like, we just have to be the ones who decide, okay, screw the missions. Let's go out and just play the game and see what happens. Um, mm. I don't know, like the, if, if the incentives aren't there, I, what all I'm saying, the only point I'm making here is I don't blame the people who are following the incentives rather than breaking away from them. No, and I, I'm just saying to you, I, I hope you realize what those people become, you know? Like we've, we've talked a lot, the three of us, about the hedonic treadmill, right? Like 100K MRR is no different from that. There's still going to be something left unfulfilled. And so I think like that's, to me, that's a sign of like, oh, we're going to beat up on like the, the 40 year, 50 year, nine to fiver who's super successful and gets burnt out. But we'll celebrate the 100K MRR because it's 100K MRR without any look to actually what that person is actually contributing. Like to me, that's just a, a lower version of the cop out. Now, that does not mean disrespect, but it just feels like a lower version of the cop out. And so what that does, Giard, I think, is you're saying, oh, wow. You're, 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 you're exalting these 100K MRR individuals without looking at the basics. Which I'm not is- exalting them. I've literally said, all I'm looking at is the game is make a lot of money by making people feel good about themselves. They the, game are- is li- the game is life, bro. That's not a game. The game is life. I'm with you, Jay. I hear you. Like I, I, we're, we're, we're speaking on two different levels. I, I agree with both of these things, right? The game is life. Mm. Mm. Are these guys playing the game of life right? Not according to my understanding of what life is, right? Mm. But I'm not gonna say sit here and say those guys are unhappy, right? They're just. Playing. I didn't say. I didn't say that either. But like, I'm just saying we're speaking at different levels here. Like, I think we agree with each other. I'm just. But saying. I, yeah, but I think I think the point I'm making is there. Any, there is only one level. This I, this idea that there's multiple levels is 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 the issue. There's one thing that everybody's doing in this life, and that's living life. And yes, financial success and being able to create something sustainable is one piece of that, right? But there are a bunch of other things to look at. And what's happening is people are achieving financial success and that's giving them a platform to talk about all these other things, which is driving all these incentives that we just talked about. That's that's the connection. And like the 100K MRR thing, like as I look at it, is part of the problem. It's like, okay, cool. Like, so now you're hitting seven figures of annual recurring revenue and what? Like, it's not, it's not dismissing what they've achieved, but like, and what, it, you know, I'm asking like, how society better? Have you advanced any of these other questions that we're, we're grappling with? And you tell me if you've met entrepreneurs that have kind of figured that out, but Mateo just said, he's never met a, a role model that sits in this space. But now he's clicking his fingers. It's playing out right in front of me. That I asked everybody how they felt about the vibes of people building. And we come back with, well, 100K MRR, mad respect. It's like, it's not, it's not, it's not what we're talking about here. You know? I think you can respect something without wanting to do it yourself or thinking it's the right ideal. I'm with Jay. I think we're all saying the same thing. Just differently. Okay. And I know you're all saying right, there's right. one level. I agree that is the level. I'm just adding a caveat that people who don't think that, so be it. And 
in their own game, they're doing a good job, even if it is not the kind of person that would be my role model. I think the GTA example is good. Like there's a billion ways to play Zelda or GTA. You can go and kill the king, right? You can go and complete all the missions or you can dick around on the side streets and just like enjoy it. And like, those are both ways to play the game. I just feel like we're getting to a point now where we're actually getting some data on, hey, this way that most people play the game, it's actually deeply unsatisfying for these reasons. And then there are some entrepreneurs who have mastered the game that we're talking about, Peter Thiel, who are like, yeah, it's actually not, it's actually not producing the, the types of innovations that move society forward. And so I think what I'm saying is people are always, people are just focused on playing GTA 5, but part of being an innovator is actually building a GTA 6 and like innovating on that. And that's just, again, I don't think we're disagreeing. I just, that's where I push on. And I don't know what gives me the right to push on that, but that's just really where I've got super interested. And like, all I can say is I'm just not that excited by the other things. Um, I just probably... Probably because I think what they require is 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 relatively unspectacular. It, on, on a micro level, on, in terms of a day-to-day, it's relatively unspectacular. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's just relatively unspectacular, I think, to 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 with whatever size team that this guy has. Now, to do 2.7 million in annual revenue as a one-person team with six things, now that's fucking interesting to me, and that's really fucking cool. And like when I've listened to these interviews, basically on my first million, all those founders are like, yeah, now I just want to spend time with like the people that I care about, you know? So it's this whole teacher man to fish thing, right? Or the, the Harvard business school guy who goes to the fishing port and it's like, oh, why are you just sitting here fishing? You know, you could build an entire fishing business and hire a bunch of people. And he's like, and to do what? Well, so you can just go fishing again. He's like, well, that's what I'm already doing. So I think it's just some of that loop I'm like seeing in this conversation tonight. I'm probably part of it too. I just kind of want to call it out because like, can't go for these lofty ideals to like, oh, well, respect, like you figured it out. 100K MRR, like, okay, are you profitable? Like how many people do you have on your team? What value is your product adding to society? No one's going down those levels, which is allowing these people to get away with 100K MRR. 10K MRR, a million ARR. Cool. But you're becoming these like life philosophers, driving all these incentives of how people raise money, these decisions that are pretty binding. Do you, do you guys see that connection? You know, like those are the people that actually end up being influential, not people like me. I agree. I'm going to unfortunately have to jump as well, but I just want to tell one quick story. Um, your, uh, your J. Cole reference earlier. Hmm. My, uh, my imam on Friday prayer last week made the exact same one. So I just want you to know you're on your youth path for shit today. <laughs> oh, really? Dude, I... <laughs> Hello, everyone. It's Cornelius. Just two more things before you go. First, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It's a small but mighty powerful action 
that makes a world of difference to the reach of the Junto's platform. Second, if you find yourself thinking, wow, I would have loved to be in the room for conversations like this, then you should consider becoming a member of Everyday Entrepreneur. EE is home to some of the brightest minds and businesses in the world today. Members get invites to our exclusive quarterly retreats, as well as access to our travel platform, hospitality guide, quarterly magazine, and a private one-on-one sit-down with me once per quarter. Our goal is to be your secret weapon as you navigate the world and build your dream life. Learn more at everydayentrepreneur.co or click the link in the description below. Anyway, that's all for now. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.